Well, we're in the midst of Genesis 3. Uh, it's, it's a uh, heavy chapter of the scriptures as we are introduced to the serpent and sin and why this world is in chaos today, but it is also the first taste we get of God's grace. Uh, God's saving grace, that is. We saw his common grace in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to read uh, Genesis 3, just 14 and 15. Then if you want to mark John 3, 14 and Romans 16, 20, we're going to read those three sections, which will help us understand this passage. So John 3, sorry, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You turn to John 3. 14. I'll read from verse 12 to give us some context. John 3, 12 to 14, 15. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Romans 16, 20. In the closing of the letter to the Roman church, Paul encourages them with this statement, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Have mercy on us, Lord, as we need your mercy and your grace in order to comprehend your infinite word, your word that is higher than our thoughts and wiser than our wisdom. And Lord, as we look just quickly at those passages that are read, we see a glimpse of your perfect plan, a plan where this world will descend into chaos, yet you will be victorious through a wounded victor. Christ will take on the image of sin and die in our place. And we, Lord, as your church, your people for your own possession, your royal priesthood, your holy nation will crush Satan under our feet, not because of our might or strength, but because of the victory we have in Christ who defeated death, sin, and Satan 
by going to the cross, although being perfect, although being righteous, he took on the state that we should have taken on and borne bore your wrath in full. So, Lord, we give you great praise that we will have victory in Christ and that the serpent who deceived our first parents and tempted them to be autonomous from you and define good and evil for themselves will be destroyed once and for all when your church is brought to you in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, these are complex, these are weighty, but these give us great encouragement in our life today and it gives us great understanding in understanding the world and the state it is in. Father, give our minds capacity to understand. Give us wisdom, Lord. Only those who are drawn by you can come to Christ. So, Lord, draw us all the more today that we may understand you to a greater depth and, of course, Lord, understand the gospel of grace to a greater depth. In Jesus' name, we lift your name on high. Amen. So we're picking up in Genesis 3. We said we would be here for a few weeks, four weeks in total. And we, are, we have looked at the deception of Eve and how Eve was deceived by the serpent and took of the fruit, now defining good and evil for herself. Adam took of the fruit from Eve and was deceived as well. And God has come to them and questioned them. And he's questioned them in the order of their responsibility, first to man, then to woman. And now we will see... He will speak to the serpent. Of course, the serpent reversed God's creation order and went from creation, a creature, an animal. He used an animal to come to the woman and then the woman to go to man. This was a deliberate reversing of God's design. We see very clearly that what took place was they have a new weight of knowledge. Adam and Eve have now a new weight of knowledge and that knowledge is good and evil. They themselves stand against God and, can, and now claim that they define good and evil for themselves. Before, in Genesis 1 and 2, God was the very definition of good and evil. He defined it. He told us what it was to be good, and what it was to be good was to be obedient to his word, and what it meant to be evil was to stand against his word. That is why we see in Genesis 1, 10 times, God said, and it was so. What God said means, that is, what God says is what is done, and that is the definition of good, doing what the holy God said we should do. Now, in this chapter, in chapter 3, we have four people, or four beings, because God and serpent aren't really people, four beings defining good and evil. And they're defining it by themselves. The serpent defines it as autonomy from God. Good and evil is to be independent. And Eve, by taking of the fruit, has agreed, and Adam, by taking of the fruit, has agreed as well. So now we have this new definition of good and evil as autonomy from the Holy Creator, and the Holy Creator should be the only one to define good and evil. Genesis 1 to 3 are probably some of the most important chapters in the whole of Scripture in order to understand the rest of the Bible and human history. If you want to know what's going on in our world today, why people do what they do, we need to have a good grasp of Genesis 1 to 3, particularly chapter 3. 
If you want to understand what's going on in the Old Testament, you need to know what happened in Genesis 3. And if you want to know why Jesus died and the whole of the Gospels and the letters that Paul wrote, you need to understand Genesis 3. So you get the point that Genesis 3 is very important for us to understand. It's important because what we see take place in Adam and Eve's deception is what we're seeing take place today in our world. It's what we see unravel in the Old Testament. What we'll see from Genesis 4 onwards is a spiraling of a world out of control until chapter uh, uh, 12, where God will intervene and make a covenant promise of salvation with Abraham. And then what we see is God's promises being fulfilled until Christ, where the ultimate salvation plans plan comes to fullness. But right here in this midst, we're going to spend a significant amount of time in a very bleak picture of a world spiraling out of control because the world is defining good and evil for themselves. The same is happening today. Those who are not in Christ, those who don't believe in the Lord Jesus and have not had a new birth will seek seek for happiness, joy, and delight in created things rather than the creator. Adam and Eve had happiness, joy, and delight in the creator. And we see that in Genesis 1 and 2 very clearly by saying they were naked and unashamed. They had no reason to be shamed. They had no reason to second-guess each other's motives because there was no sin whatsoever. Their happiness, their joy, and delight was not in the creation, but rather in the, in the creator God, and God gave them everything else, every tree of the garden, every beautiful thing in Eden, in order to enjoy for his sake, not for its sake alone or for their sake. So now what we see because of Genesis 3 is that the world is seeking happiness, joy, and delight, as their first parents did, Adam and Eve, in creation, whatever it may be, success, status, wealth, It doesn't matter what you define it as. They're seeking it in a creation rather than the creator. And the creator is the only one that can give a fullness of happiness, joy, and delight. So we look at this verse, or these couple of verses, just two verses from Genesis, but we're going to go right through a lot of scripture. So I guess have your Bible ready if we can keep up, but maybe pen them down. We see God come to the serpent and he doesn't question him, but he instantly states a curse on him. So verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, if we go back to verses, uh, the verses uh, going just before that, we see very clearly that God questioned man and then questioned Eve. And then now he does not question the serpent, but rather condemns the serpent. This lays out a couple of questions. Why doesn't Satan get a second chance? Why doesn't he get to give an explanation for what he has done? Adam got a reason, a a chance to defend himself. God comes to him and in his gracious, uh, in his graciousness, asks him a question, not a condemning question, but a question of grace. Where are you? Not what have you done, but where are you? He knew what he had done because God is all-knowing and everywhere he sees all things. But Adam is there hiding behind a tree of God's creation in his shame. And God says, where are you? A question of grace. 
And when he comes to Eve, he asks her a question and gives Eve a chance. And of course, Eve throws the blame onto the serpent. And that's where we left off last week. So what's the difference between Satan and man and woman? Or what's the difference between the spiritual world and us as people? Well, for starters, we are made in the image of God and the angels are not. And I speak of angels because the scriptures state that there are fallen angels and that is where we get Satan and demons. Let's look quickly at Jude. Jude has one chapter. We're going to study it later on in the year to break up Genesis. Uh, Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority but left their proper dwelling he is kept in eternal chains, chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So what we see here are there's angels that were created to worship God. If we go back to Genesis 1, we're going, or Genesis 2 actually, we looked at the heavenly dwelling and there was God on his throne, the, the cherubim holding the throne up, which were mystical creatures. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Seraphim, which were worshiping creatures, and then the multitude of angels. It was this descending down in glory. Yet what we see in angels, they could defer from their position. They could jump out of their position and they would be cast out. God says, or God's word says here, that they were chained in gloomy darkness. Well, we believe what we understand from scriptures, particularly passages like Ezekiel 28, is that Satan was an angel. He was a beautiful angel. He had a great beauty and he was cast down out of heaven. He was cast down because his pride, it says, which we'll look at a bit later on, got in the way and he thought that he could be better than God or be God. The same temptation he puts on Adam and Eve. Now, the difference between angels and man is that they are not created in the image of God and we are created in God's image. When we look at Genesis 1.27, it says, in the image of God, 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 uh, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Very clearly, man is different to angels. Man has something significantly special about them, and that is that they reflect and represent God. We have something that the angels don't. They may be incredible creatures. They may be a mystical creature that causes us to wonder and want to know more, but we are more important a better creation, if you want to put it that way. Think of Hebrews 1. It says, they are ministering spirits sent, angels are ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They're ministering spirits sent to serve us who will inherit salvation. Now, there's a great danger in, danger in spending too much time thinking about the angels and there's those YouTube videos, if you've seen them, of angels that save people most of them if not all of them are fake i would say um but you can go and waste your time looking at youtube videos if you like so what does this show us in the fact that god comes to adam questions him eve questions him gives them a chance to defend themselves or a chance to repent but the serpent is condemned because what it follows in verse 13, 14 is a condemnation. He curses him instantly. Because of what you have done, cursed are you above all livestock. What's the difference is that we are created in the image of God 
And God's greatest love is His glory, His image. What this reveals to us is first and foremost, God will defend His glory, His namesake, His fame before anything else in all of creation. Yes, even before us. We are not the pinnacle. God is the pinnacle. He is the highest. As we saw a few weeks ago, the phrase, most high God. He is at the top. Look at Isaiah 48, or listen to Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. It says, for my namesake, this is God speaking to Israel, for my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That's a heavy verse. And a lot of the world today teaches a man-centered theology that we are the centerpiece of everything and therefore God does absolutely everything to serve us and save us. But even Christ himself says in John's, uh, between the high priestly prayer, John 14 to 17, over and over again, it is for your glory, your glory that I go to the cross. Glorify me as I was glorified with you before the world began. There's that question that people ask, what was Jesus thinking when he was on the cross? He thought of you. No, that is not true. He thought of his father in heaven. He was thinking of his father in heaven, whose glory had been profaned among the nations by our sinful disobedience. So when we come to look at this questioning of Adam and Eve and the reason there is an opportunity of grace and what follows in this passage is a salvation plan is so that God's image bearers will continue to reflect his name and he will preserve a nation for himself who will be holy. He will preserve a people for himself who will praise him. He will save a people who will be sanctified. These aren't possibilities, these are certainties because his name will not be profaned among the nations. His glory will not be given to another. And the serpent is not the image of God. The serpent was a creature that was created, or, the, or Satan, is the creature that was created in order to worship and serve the image of God. And he left that position and wanders to and throw on the earth in order to rebel and deceive the image bearers of God. So when he did not have victory in heaven, he came, he was cast down to earth. And where does he go to attack? The very image bearers of God. And what does God want to save? His image, his glory, his namesake. So the serpent is condemned and people are shown grace. And we'll see in this very passage, the victory that will be won for God's people. So that his name will be glorified forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's follow on in verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So the serpent is guilty, but what we see is something quite strange. The serpent is being condemned. The actual creature, the serpent, is being condemned. Satan is spirit, right? He's angel uh, was an angel, he's, he's a dark spirit, he does not have a physical form, 
but he takes on a form of a serpent, a form of a creature to deceive Eve. Now, in his taking on the form of a creature, he is, he's reversing God's order. Man was meant to have dominion over God's creation, over the, all the livestock, all creeping things. And Satan takes on the form of one of the lowest creeping things, a snake. And in taking on this creature, we must see, in taking on the image of the snake, we see very clearly that God now condemns the serpent as well. So there's two things going on in this curse upon the serpent. There's the physical condemnation or the physical curse upon the creature, that is the serpent, and there's the spiritual curse upon Satan as a spiritual being. And we look at this physical creature as a metaphor or analogy to the spiritual brokenness. And this comes from uh, the law, the Old Testament law, Exodus 21, which we see very clearly that any livestock, any animal used for sin or causing damage to any person, property or injury or death is to be killed. The word of God does not hold animals as highly as our society does today. The word of God made it very clear. If you use an animal for sin or if an animal kills or harms anyone, it should be put to death immediately. And that was the law. So in the cursing of the serpent, what we are seeing is the law being fulfilled in that this snake was used for evil. It was not evil in itself. It was part of God's creation. But, the, that, but Satan has taken on the form of the snake. He's used it for evil. Therefore, it should be condemned. And God puts a curse upon it. And as he puts the curse upon it, it gives us an analogy for the spiritual curse that is upon, this, uh, upon Satan. So what is the curse? It says you're cursed above all livestock. Uh, you are uh, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So the curse that we see here, and first of all, curse in the scriptures, like I think maybe in our modern day we think of some sort of like weird Harry Potter spell that's getting put on people, but a curse in the scriptures was not magical it was a judgment. It was to say you're under the judgment of God. And there's only two places where God himself gives a curse. Here in Genesis 3 to uh, Satan, the woman and man, which we'll see next week in the woman and man. And then in Genesis 4 when he curses Cain. The rest of the curses in Scripture become, come through his prophets or through the, word, through the written word of God. Maybe Moses would speak curses. And it was to say you were under the judgment of God. You're no longer in the blessing of God. You're no longer going to receive closeness to God. You're under the judgment of God. And we see here the certainty of the serpent's curse, woman's curse next week and man's curse next week, that they are certain because God himself laid them down. And here we see the serpent, the very physical creature, the snake we would call it, is being cursed and he's cursed in his, his response or relationship to all other creatures. He's going to be below, in a physical form, below all other creatures in the world. 
He will not mingle with other creatures. If you see those horrific pictures of uh, massive snakes eating very large animals, what we're seeing there is an effect of the fall. They are at odds with one another. Every creature is going to be at odds with the physical, physical uh, creature, the serpent. But the imagery we have here is the, the image that we are the livestock. The image that we have here is not just physical, that the snake is going to be at odds with all other creatures, but also that it is going to be defeated. It is going to be a, an unprevailing creature. This phrase, you shall crawl on your belly, or on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, is not a reference to its physical movement, but rather a condemnation of you will be destroyed, you'll be utterly cut off. If we look at Psalm 72, it says, your enemies will lick dust, or Micah 7, 17, they shall lick the dust like the serpent. This was a phrase to say you're, uh, you are defeated or you're going to be defeated above all other things. So when we look at this in the spiritual picture, it was a condemnation or a curse upon Satan to say you will not prevail. You can fight against the image of God all day long. You can try and, and tarnish it. You can try and break it down, but you will not prevail. You'll eat dust. You'll be low, lower than anything else. So the physical picture of the serpent, the physical picture that we have of the serpent today on the ground is a reminder of the destruction of Satan. A reminder that all spiritual evil will be destroyed and will not prevail. They will eat dust all the days of their life. They will scamber around, think they are going to win, but they will not win. And Isaiah, when speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, says in Isaiah 65, 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, says the Lord. When Isaiah looks forward to the new heavens and the new earth, when everything will be restored and God's people will be with him, the lion and the lamb will graze together, uh, sorry, the wolf and the lamb will graze together, the lion will eat straw, and the serpent will stay destroyed. He will continue to be the lowest of low. He will not prevail. He will not have success over the glory of God. We then see it referred to people. That was a reference to creature and creature. Now, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. If we look at this in both the physical form, the creature as the snake, or and the spiritual form, Satan, first we see in the physical that people don't really like snakes. Now, I'm not saying that all people don't like snakes, but it's pretty common that people don't like the physical image and the interaction with a snake. Not mo most people don't see a brown snake and go and pick it up. I know there's crazy people out there, right? That, that does happen. But naturally, because of the fall, the reason we find snakes creepy and a little off-putting is because Satan used it as a weapon for our destruction. He, he used it for evil. He used it to try and separate us 
from God or, well, he achieved to separate us from God. He created evil and therefore we will be separated from snakes. We will have an uneasiness about them. Now, let's not over-spiritualize that and say it is wrong to have snakes as pet. I think that's weird. If you want to have a, pet, a snake as a pet, I think it's a bit odd. That's fine, but it's not, it's not evil. We can take these metaphors too far. I remember I had a friend uh, and his mum had a pet snake and she kept it in her cleavage and would walk around the shops with this snake poking out uh, her shirt. She was very odd. Um, if you would have seen, it's very strange. Anyway, that was a detour. I shouldn't have said that. Um, the symbol of the snake is something that generally creeps us out. And that is the physical curse of the snake. We aren't to be really in a deep relationship with that creature. They're not like dogs or cats. They're not like farm animals. We're at odds with the snake. That is the first physical, the physical curse upon the creature of the serpent. Now we look at the spiritual, which is far more important. What is this saying about our spiritual relationship now with Satan? Well, we are going to be forever at odds with Satan. As Satan deceived Eve, and there's these weird false, teaching out, false teachings out there that Eve now became Satan's friend and was with him, that is not true. Eve and Adam were most likely saved through this promise of the conquering offspring, if we really understand Scripture clearly. But what we see here is that they will forever be at odds, just as we don't like the serpent, the physical creation of the snake that creeps us out. Satan will constantly be a hindrance to us today. He will constantly bear against those who are Eve's children. Now, what we need to clarify is who are the offsprings of Satan and who are the offsprings of Eve? Well, the offspring of Satan is not little demons that are running around. It is people who don't call on the name of Jesus. The offspring of Satan are all the people who claim to have another God other than our Lord God, who do not worship Jesus as Lord. The offspring of Satan are those who reject the scriptures and continue to define good and evil for themselves. That means there is a great false teaching in the church today that goes forth and witnesses to the world and says, you're a child of God, come back to him. That is not true. You're a child of Satan until Jesus saves you, and then you're a child of God. If we need to turn to a passage for confirmation, John 1.12 tells us that only those who receive Jesus or who believe in his name have the right to be called children of God. So there's the definition of a child of God. You've received Jesus and you believe in his name. If you don't receive Jesus and believe in his name, you are not a child of God. You're an offspring of Satan. Jesus confirms this in John 8, 44. You are speaking to the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because he has no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out his native character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Very clearly, Jesus calls the very people who were meant to be the people of God, children of Satan. He is your father. So the offspring of the serpent who are going to be at odds with the offspring of Eve are the children of Satan, those who don't call on the name of Jesus, and the children of Eve are those 
who call on the name of her conquering offspring, the one in the very next phrase, who will bruise his head and you shall, who will bruise the serpent's head and he shall bruise his heel. The ones who are children of Eve are the ones who call on his names. This is the pattern that follows throughout the whole of Scripture. As I said, Genesis 3 reveals much of uh, what we need to understand in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and, and our current history or our current day. If we turn to Genesis 4, we'll see the child of Satan, Cain, at odds with the child of Eve, Abel. If we continue through the Old Testament, we see this in Esau and Jacob. Esau was the child of Satan. He was not God. Jacob was the child of, of Eve. Moses and Pharaoh, they were at odds. Saul and David, the Pharisees and the apostles, and now today the church and the world. There is going to be a spiritual warfare between those who call on the name of the Lord and those who do not. Those who do not call on the name of the Lord are children of the devil. And, our, and their offspring is going to be against the offspring of the kingdom, the offspring of Eve. Let's refer to this commentator who says this. A perpetual quarrel is here commenced between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil among men. War is proclaimed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That there is a continual conflict between grace and corruption in the hearts of God's people. Satan, by their corruption, assaults them, buffets them, sifts them, and seeks to devour them. They, by the exercise of their grace, resist him wrestle with him, quench his fiery darts, force him to flee from them. Heaven and hell can never be reconciled, nor light and darkness. No more can Satan and a sanctified, no more can, a, can Satan and a sanctified soul, for those are contrary to one another. We see very clearly that this is the battle from, from now on between those who are called by God and those who are not called by God that there will be enmity, there will be enemies, they will be against one another, and there will be constant conflict between the people of God and the world. John 2 tells us, 1 John 2 tells us so clearly that you cannot love the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And the correct translation is the love for the Father is not in you. You can't have love for the Father and for the world. If you want to love the world and embrace the world, you must turn from Jesus. And you must leave, leave Jesus out of this. The church is opposing the world with the gospel. This is the only way. We stand against the world with the gospel. And we must refuse to take on the lies of Satan the, the lies of the world and the, lie, the sins of the world. The offspring of the serpent stands opposed to God. Whether it's agnosticism, atheism, Hinduism, Islam, humanism, whatever one you want to attribute to this world, if you come across those people, they are children of Satan and they stand against God. We stand upon the word. We do not engage in the worldly arguments of this day. 
We turn to the word over and over again, whether it's an argument on creation, whether it's an argument on our existence, whether it's an argument on good and evil, we turn to the word. We don't float our mystical opinions out there. We stand upon the word of scripture and the word tells us very clearly that we're going to be at odds. We're going to be against those who are children of Satan, those who are the offspring of Satan. We will always be against. How do we love the world? By opposing it with the gospel. By standing on the word of God. We don't love the world by becoming like the world. We don't love the world by entertaining their sins and lies. We love the world by opposing it with the gospel of truth and grace. In John 1, it says Jesus came in truth and grace. That means he spoke hard messages like saying to the Pharisees, you are children of Satan. But he showed grace by inviting them to rest in his work on the cross and the resurrection in his salvation plan, which we see is the promise in this very next phrase. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of Satan can be saved by the wounded victor who is the ultimate saviour, the one who perfectly bears the image of God, yet dies as an image of sin. Satan will bruise him, Satan will wound him, but Satan will not destroy him. And listen to Ken Hughes, a preacher in the States, say, Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness to draw him into sin, And Satan tried to terrify him in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane to drive him to despair. It was the devil that put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ, of Peter to deny him, of the chief priest to prosecute him, of the false witness to accuse him, of Pilate to condemn him, aiming in all this to destroy the Savior, to ruin salvation. But on the contrary... It was by death that Christ destroyed him that had power over death. Because Christ is the perfect representation of the image of God, because Christ fulfilled the whole law of God, because Christ is righteous beyond all righteousness, holy beyond all holiness, he stood condemned as a sinner. He took on the image of sin in himself. And when he died, which Satan thought was victory, He defeated the offspring. But let's clarify because Satan is still around and we read about his attacks today. Well, first we see in Numbers 21.9, this picture, this story of Israel, the people of God in the wilderness. And they're in the wilderness and they do a great sin against God. And God sends snakes, serpents among the people to for judgment, and they bite the people, they have, they have a, a reaction to it, they're dying, and then God says to Moses, build a bronze snake and put it on a staff, and when people look at it, they will live. And then we read earlier, John three fourteen, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When Christ went to the cross, he took on the very instrument that He took on the very image of the instrument that Satan tried to use to destroy us. 
He took on the image of the serpent and the image of the serpent, which was once used for sin, is now used for our victory in conquering Satan. Satan, this great deceiver, this great cunning artist, used creation to try and manipulate the image bearers of God to destroy God's image, yet he failed and God used that very image to bring about salvation. God used the image of the snake on a stick to be the image of Christ on the cross as an image of taking sin on his shoulders for us and salvation in it. What we see in this passage is not condemnation, but victory. An absolute victory that screams throughout the whole of scriptures, he will conquer his head. He will bruise the serpent's head. All evil will be destroyed. He may wound us as he wounded Christ. He may hinder us as it looked like he hindered Christ, but he will not prevail. He will be bruised with a fatal bruise that will lead to the destruction of his head by the church. And Romans 16, 20 tells us that Romans 16, 20 says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Who will crush Satan? His church. The offspring of Eve will stand in the victory of Christ and prevail over Satan once and for all and evil will no longer reign and all the offspring of Satan will be cast out of this world and Christ will dwell here with his people and we will see him face to face because he has defeated defeated the deceiver, defeated the originator of evil. This beautiful picture of Genesis 14 and 15 is the picture that runs throughout Scripture. You are either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. And the only means of becoming a child of God is not through your might or strength, but through the ultimate child of God, Jesus, the Son of God, who fulfilled everything you couldn't and died the death you should. We must now be aware Be aware of the deception that still lies. As Paul warns the Corinthians of being deceived like Eve was and losing their affection for Christ or revealing revealing that they never knew Christ. Be aware of the deception that says, is this really sin? As Satan said to Eve in the garden. Beware of the deception that says, is God really good? that leads to questioning, can we really trust his word? Beware of these deceptive questions as Satan tries to wound the offspring of God, as he tries to wound the offspring of Eve, as he tries to bring the bride under condemnation when Christ clearly says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ's death was sufficient. Let's remember that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are the bride of Christ, the conquering bride of Christ. And when we look to Revelation 17, we see clearly that the church started and will prevail. If you look at Revelation 17, the bride of Christ comes down from heaven and it continues on earth forever and ever. She is not conquered. She is not destroyed. 
She has victory. So would we not listen to the lies of the devil? Would we say no to him and he will flee? Will we stand as the offspring of the woman, which are true offspring of God in the victory of Christ, who bruised his head in which we will crush as his church? Let me pray. Oh, Father, what a beautiful introduction to your word in this world, to see your wonderful creation, to see a rebellious people, yet immediately to see your redemption plan. You have bruised his head, Lord the one who tried to take your glory for himself, the one who tries to defeat, hinder your image bearers, who thought he had won at the crucifixion of Christ, yet you used the image of sin to save us. Christ took on the guilt of our sin. He took on the shame. He wore it as if he was a sinner. Yet being righteous, he died. And because he was not worthy of death, Lord, he rose in conquering victory. We stand today in his victory. Lord, would we know that? Although we feel at odds against the world, although we are at odds against the children of Satan, the children of the serpent, would we remember that the church has ultimate victory? She will prevail. The church may feel like it's dwindling, It may feel like people aren't being saved, but around the world, Lord, your church is increasing over and over again. There is a multitude. There is a multitude today of people who sing in every tribe, nation, and tongue your praises. Endless praise to you is being sung in this world. And Lord, it is a glimpse of the new heavens and earth when there will be endless praise. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, Lord, They started praising him and and they wanted them to be quiet. But he said, if we do not praise, the rocks will cry out. You are worthy of worship. Your glory is worthy of honor. It shall not be given to another. We should hold you high above everything. You saved us for the sake of your glory. You love us for the sake of your, your glory. We are your holy people for your glory. We are your chosen people for your glory. Would we take ourselves out of the centerpiece of this picture and put you where you should be on the throne of this this world, Lord? The throne of our lives, the throne of this church. We love you, Lord. We give you great praise. In Jesus' name, amen.